Church, we uh, get the joy of wrapping up a, a series we've been looking at over the last several weeks called The Future is Bright. And it's really been a great series in which Pastor Brandon's been looking at a number of Old Testament promises that God gave to his people about future restoration of their people and the blessings that were coming in the midst of very difficult times or seasons that they were going through. And so today, uh, coming out of Christmas and being on the back end of Christmas and the coming of Jesus, I wanted to look at a passage that really does that same thing, but it's a passage from the New Testament. It's a passage about Jesus. In fact, it's a miracle that Jesus performed that was the very first of his sign miracles. And in the Gospel of John, John records several unique miracles that Jesus did that were signs. And, and by a sign, he meant kind of like we would even use a sign today. Like when you see a sign telling you how far away Austin is or in what direction Austin is, that sign isn't the reality of Austin itself. It's an object that points towards the reality of what is to come and where Austin is. And these miracles in John's gospel have that same kind of uh, purpose. They are to be thought of and, and looked into and reflected on and point towards the reality of who Jesus is and what he came to accomplish. And so in this miracle... We're going to look at what is probably one of his most famous miracles, the turning of water into wine. And most of us might be familiar with it or have heard of it, but maybe we've never reflected on the actual meaning of it. Uh, what exactly is it pointing to and what are we to learn about it and about Jesus from this miracle? So we're going to look at this today and there's three things that we want to see from this. We want to see the cost of future joy. Jesus is going to portray this image of his kingdom being incredibly full of joy, of just the riches of God's blessing in this future that we have. And so in this miracle, we're going to see the cost of that future joy. We're also going to see the character of that joy. Uh, what does that joy look like? What does it consist of? How is it different than the joys in this world? And lastly, we're going to see the timing of this future joy. So three simple things that if we just reflect and think about this miracle, uh, I believe John, the author, is trying to point us to an understanding who Jesus is and what he came to do. So you have your Bible with you. Open it up to John chapter 2. This miracle takes place in the second chapter of the Gospel of John, uh, the first 11 verses are going to capture this whole story, and we're going to see uh, that Jesus is coming into a wedding scene. It's a wedding that he attends uh, right from the beginning. And so uh, before we jump into this, I need to give you a little bit of background. Uh, I think oftentimes we don't understand why this miracle has significance or even what it understands or what it points to because we don't understand some images or things that are taught throughout Scripture uh, that are often associated with Jesus. So one of them is, and in the Bible, God's picture of his relationship and even his salvation of his people is often portrayed uh, like a groom uh, marrying a bride, that God is this groom, he's coming in and he's preparing his bride, and it's a relationship of joy and of love and of celebration, of communion together. And so throughout the Old Testament and even in the New Testament, we see this image, and in, until you understand that, if you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, this miracle and what Jesus is doing to fulfill some of these things uh, may not be understandable. So let me share a couple passages that kind of help us with that. One of them is Isaiah 54. 
Isaiah 54, verses five and six, the prophet says this, uh, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. So you see this, imp- this, uh, this image used where the prophet is calling out and, and communicating to God's people who are in the midst of exile that their husband or God is like a husband to them. He is uh, the one who cares for them and protects them. And he's calling their, this wife who's grieving. She's in exile. She's separated from her husband. He's calling her back. You see, if you look at the prophet Hosea, a whole book in the Old Testament that uses the prophet Hosea's marriage to a a woman who is unfaithful to him over and over again. And God uses that as a metaphor of Israel's relationship with God and how Israel has constantly turned to other gods and not been faithful uh, to the true God and how God continues to pursue her as a husband would pursue a wife. And so you see that image even there. And then in the New Testament, we see it here. In fact, in the Gospel of John, the Gospel we're in, just one chapter later, uh, John says these very words, uh, John the Baptist, who came before Jesus, he says in chapter 3, verse 28, he says, you yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. So here John's referring to Jesus coming, and he's saying, hey, the one who has the bride, meaning the church or his people, he's the bridegroom, and John was not him. He says, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So again, here's John referring to Jesus as this bridegroom, and he's just announcing his coming and preparing his bride, God's people, to be ready. And then lastly, we see in the book of Revelation, one of the latter chapters of the Bible, and it's talking about uh, Jesus' second coming and a celebration that's going to happen in the midst of that. And it's a supper, it's a marriage supper, it's a wedding feast that this is describing. And many places talk about this in the scriptures, but Revelation 19, uh, verses six through nine, talk about this. It says, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb, the lamb referring to Jesus, the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So why is this important? It's so important if you're going to pick up what this miracle Jesus performs was intended to mean, it's very important that you understand this narrative that's been running through Scripture and through God's relationship with his people for hundreds and hundreds of years. That Jesus is this ultimate bridegroom. He is the perfect groom, and in his relationship with his people, the bride, is going to be this loving, providing, caring relationship that's going to be epitomized by this marriage feast, this incredible, joyful celebration for all of eternity 
together. And so as we walk into this story, that will help us understand some of the images and the things that we come across as we go into it. So let's start the story in this narrative and see what happens. John chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Let's pause here and look at this first one. This first section, I believe, captures this idea of the cost of future joy, the cost of the joy that awaits us in our relationship with Jesus. So the the first thing we got to look at is what's up with this strange interaction between Mary, Jesus' mother, and Jesus? I mean, if we pause, oftentimes we just read right through it and we really don't give it much thought, but there's a lot that's packed into this little interaction that really opens up the majority of this miracle to us and ties to some of the things that we've already talked about uh, in terms of how Jesus is portrayed as the bridegroom to his church. How do we read this? First of all, I think this is one of those spots where there's humor in it, Bible humor, that I tend to think is pretty funny. Uh, And if you read too quickly, you totally miss it. Look at what happens here. Here's this wedding going on, and they run out of wine, and Jesus' mother comes over to Jesus, and she says this, they have no wine. She just states the fact. And I think this is like 2,000 years ago. And what, I just, what just cracks me up is like, this is motherhood at its best. Like 2,000 years later, moms are still doing the exact same thing. My wife of 30 years, who is a mother to our five children, I have seen her do this exact same thing over and over again. It's different. It's not necessarily wine, but often a common phrase in a house to one of our kids is, hey, boys or girls, the garbage is full. And I often will respond to it, you're exactly right, the garbage is full. That is a true fact. Or your room is messy. Women often state these facts, and they state them, but they're loaded with intention. You know exactly what it means when your mom says, the garbage is full. Hey, Chad, the garbage is full. What she means is, someone needs to take out the garbage, and I'm asking you to do it. And instead of just coming out and stating that, they state this fact. And I believe that's exactly what's taking place here. Mary came to Jesus, not necessarily knowing why, but she just states the fact the wine has run out. And interestingly enough, how Jesus responds is maybe even more odd. He starts with a phrase that just says, hey, woman, he doesn't call her his mother. He says, woman, what has this to do with me? Now, that wasn't a disrespectful way to respond Uh, in Jesus' time, but it certainly wasn't an endearing term that someone might use with their mother when they're in a very warm situation. And there's lots of reasons probably behind that. Many just relying on the fact or based on the fact that Jesus at this point is over 30 years old. He's in the midst of his ministry, and there's an element of him being the son of God, being God himself in human flesh, where he is beginning to separate himself from, say, the paternal or maternal relationship he has with his mom. In fact, Jesus is really showing himself within this as being her savior as opposed to her being his mother. 
And no longer is Mary in a position to ask her son to just do something using his godlike powers, if we might think of that. Uh, he, she's re- having to realize this is the Son of God. This is my Savior, and his will should be my will as opposed to mine being his. But the interesting thing about this is what Jesus tacks on to it after that phrase. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? He says, my hour has not yet come. Like, what does that mean? Well, unless you read the Gospel of John and are familiar with it, that might slip right past you. But if you read the Gospel of John, you will recognize that that phrase, my hour or the hour, that term is used many, many times in the Gospel of John. And every time it's used of Jesus or by Jesus, it refers to one thing. The hour refers to the time of Jesus' suffering, death, and resurrection. That's what it refers to. Which leads us to say, like, why would Jesus connect that with his mother asking him that, or telling him that they've run out of wine? And here's, I think, the connection. See, in Jewish customs, the groom was always responsible for the food and the wine. If they ran out of food, if they ran out of wine, it was the groom who looked bad. They were responsible to make sure that was provided. And Jesus' time for him, when when Jesus would provide his wine, think of this, Jesus is portrayed as the perfect bridegroom, and the day would come where his wedding feast, as we read about, as we saw throughout Scripture, is being pointed towards, where his wedding feast would come. And at that wedding feast, Jesus would be responsible for the wine. And wine in Jewish times, and even in Old Testament Uh, A lot of imagery is a symbol of joy, of celebration. It was always present at places of celebration or great abundance. And so Jesus knew that when his wedding came, he would be responsible for the purchase of the wine, for providing the wine. But even more so, Jesus would be responsible for his bride being ready. And so even though this present groom had the cost of paying for that wine. When Mary came to Jesus saying, hey, they've run out of wine, I'd imagine Jesus immediately looked into the future in some way, pondering his wedding, this wedding of him and the church or the people of God, and what it was going to cost him for that wedding to come. You see, everyone thinks of different things Uh, when they're at a wedding. A young girl is always thinking about what's my dress going to look like and who is he going to be? And a mom is thinking about all the decorations and all the things that are going on and and what's it going to, you know, where are we going to do this and who's all going to be there? And a dad, a dad is often thinking one thing when he's at a wedding. How much is this thing going to cost me? It's going to cost him a lot to provide joy for his daughter's marriage. And I think in some way, that's exactly what Jesus was thinking. As he reflected on the time when he would provide the greatest wine for his wedding, he was beginning to look down the path of his earthly ministry to realize the price he was going to have to pay in order to provide the joy that his bride would experience on that day. You see, our future joy 
required Jesus' willing, sacrificial suffering. And Jesus knew that. There was no other way. We as an imperfect bride, we as a less than sufficient bride could ever stand in a perfect, holy, communal relationship with God, with Jesus, in our fallen, broken state. And no human in and of himself, no human born of humans alone could ever stand in our place and take the weight of sin upon them to purify us for that. Jesus and Jesus alone could accomplish that task. And he came to do just that, to live the perfect sinless life for you and for me, and then to lay down his life and make this sacrificial willing payment for you and for me so that we could be welcomed into this celebration, this marriage supper of the Lamb. He would be the groom that would pay the cost that was necessary for us to have that one-day wedding. You see, Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom, and he has paid an infinite cost for us to be welcomed with joy into the love and the kingdom that he's prepared for us. And the cost for Jesus' future wedding would be his innocent and infinite life. So as we continue to worship and just ponder that and and think about how this story is playing out and this miracle is setting up, let's worship and, and sing together a song that captures this element of God's costly love and Jesus' willing sacrifice for you and for me. Sing along now with Seth and Mary Ellen as they lead us. But the next thing I want you to see is the character of this future joy. What's the quality of it? What's the quantity of it? What does it look like? And, and how are we to uh, picture this joy that Jesus is purchasing for us in our salvation? So the story goes on. After uh, Mary asked Jesus this question and he responds the way he does, I love even in this in chapter, or in verse five, it says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Here Mary goes from trying to be Jesus' mother to really being a follower and just saying, do what he says, not what I say. And, and here's what happens. It says, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So what we see here is is what Jesus does in this miracle is first off, he takes uh, an incredibly... Uh, symbolic and and ritualistic uh, item in Jewish ritualism and and uses it to really portray his miracle, to hold his miracle. He gets six of these jars that were uh, 
rites of purification jars, jars that the Jews would have used, and they kind of created this whole ceremonial system that any time they ate or any time they gathered at a, a community event like this, these jars would be filled with water, and it would be a ritual washing that they would go through that was symbolic of them washing off the sins of the world. And a lot of times, it was when they had been out in Gentile areas or non-Christian areas, and they came into a Jewish gathering, they were washing off the sins of all those sinners out in the world so that they could be a cleansed and holy people. And that's a custom that they had created, but it was very sacred and very important to them, very significant. And Jesus, right in the midst of that, takes these incredibly sacred objects and has the master of the feast fill them up with water and then turns them into wine. Uh, something that symbolizes great celebration and great joy, a ritual that was to point them towards the sinfulness and dirtiness of the world. Jesus fills them and turns it into uh, the best wine that they'd ever had before, as the master of the feast states here. And And he's communicating something in this. You see, the joy of Jesus' salvation far exceeds what any earthly man-made religion can accomplish. And we constantly as humans are trying to create systems or strategies or ways in which we can feel pure or clean or earn our salvation or earn our works. Even within our own faith, we can add on rules and additional things that we believe are sacred and are important. And Jesus, right in the midst of this in his own culture, confronts that very system and shows how his way of salvation and what he comes to offer and bring is far superior to the religious ways of the people of his time. In fact, the fact that this earthly bridegroom's provisions were inadequate, he he ran out of wine, this earthly bridegroom, that would have been a huge embarrassment in their culture, And Jesus steps in and provides not just great wine, but the amount of it. We're talking over 100 gallons, probably 150 or more gallons of wine. So not just the quality of it that we hear about, but the quantity of it. It would have been impossible for them to drink all that wine in the the portion of the wedding that remained. And Jesus is communicating. He's pointing to something that we need to see that the quality and the character of the joy of the salvation that he is bringing is far superior to anything that we could possibly experience in this world. The salvation that he has will complete everything that we feel is missing or all the ways in which this world falls short. Just like this groom fell short at his wedding, Jesus fulfills that with an abundance that we can never fully understand. See, our future joy will abundantly exceed any earthly joy we could possibly experience. What Jesus comes to offer is far superior to anything we could ever imagine. No earthly religion could ever compare to the abundant joy Jesus offers in a relationship, and the extreme amount of it just shows that it's an un- ending, never falling short type of joy that awaits us uh, when Jesus comes again to take us and, and bring about this final celebration 
of a marriage supper with him. I believe in a lot of ways, this is why so many people in Austin don't worship on a Sunday. They believe that religion and Christianity is all about the don'ts and the do's and the things they can't do and taking away and loss and, and, and hurt and pain and, and removing all the fun things. That's many people's picture of Christianity. And that's often what we can portray to them is Christianity or being a Christian means you can't do this and you can't do that and you can't do that. And, and there may be truths to all those things, but that's not the end means for which Jesus came. Jesus came to offer a joy that so supersedes and exceeds the joys of this world that for us to share anything less is to sell Jesus short, is to paint a picture of him that's not true of who he is. That every joy that we seek to get met in this world in a temporal way will always fall short. And that's what this wedding portrays, that, that your groom, the, the person you might marry, they will never live up to the expectations that you might have for them. None of us do. We're broken and we fall short. That job that you thought, if you could just get that job, if I could just get into that company, it'll be everything that I ever wanted. And then you get in there and you find out that inside that company, there are people who are broken just like you are. Many of us hop from church to church and we think, man, if I could just get to that church or if I could just sit under that pastor's teaching, then finally my Christianity would absolutely flourish and it would be everything that I want it to be. Only to get to that place and find out within that church and even within those leaders, there are people who are broken and less than what we might have expected or hoped that they might be. And Jesus is pointing us to that in the midst of this miracle. That every joy that we seek to get fully satisfied this side of heaven and this earth will fall short. But everything that we anchor in the person of Jesus and everything that we hope in in his future kingdom will far exceed in length in quantity and in quality, anything that we could possibly imagine here in this earth. Sure, Jesus calls us away from sin and into a new life with him, but he does so not to steal joy away from us, but to prevent us from putting our hopes in something that will never fully satisfy the joys that you and I were created for. He wants us to find our joy most deeply satisfied in him. And he is a groom, a bridegroom, that can provide those things for us. See, when we present Jesus to people, do we stop at all the things he tells us not to do? Or do we take time to look into a person's life and see where they're chasing after joys of this world that will only and ever let them down? and then lead them to how Jesus is the true and greater joy in that area in their life. Let's continue to worship and respond to Jesus and turn our hearts towards him, knowing just like a bride and a groom uh, who have been married for a season or maybe are just meeting, uh, one of the greatest joys in marriage and one of the greatest lessons in marriage is to grow in that love for one another. 
And so let's sing to Jesus. Let that joy well up in your heart as you communicate to him the depth of your love for him, but more so you reflect on the love that he has for you. So we've seen the cost of our future joy, and we've reflected on the character of it, the quality of it, its infinite length, and its abundant uh, value in so many ways. The last thing we want to see from this miracle that I think it points to is the timing of our future joy. And that's a bit of a, an oxymoron or maybe a bit redundant, but I think it's important uh, because we get lost in this in many ways as Christians. Even though we might know this, we get mixed up with the timing of the joy that Jesus offers us, or at least the fullness of that joy. And that can get us into a lot of trouble. And I think it's caught in a very subtle statement uh, that's right at the end of this passage. And, And I think John included it for this very reason, that if we're reflecting on it and thinking about it, it seems so obvious, but yet it's so practical and important for us to understand as Christians and understanding as a person who is wanting to follow Jesus or wonder what he is offering. And it says this here at the very end in verse 10, uh, when the master of the feast came to him, excuse me, he says to him, uh, everyone serves the good wine first. He's making a statement about the culture. This is just how things in their culture works. This is how things in the world works. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. That's what people in the world do. We put our best foot forward. Everyone looks their best at the wedding, and then we find out a lot of other aspects of a person's character much later in life. Everyone puts their best foot forward at the interview, But then once the work starts, then we find out there's more behind the curtain. And that's just what he's stating. But he says this about this particular person. But he says, you have kept the good wine until now. The timing of this future joy. The world we live in always offers its best first. And then when it runs out, we get the worst. It's just how this world offers, whether it's fame. You look at these uh, kids that get fame or these things early on in life and it looks great, but then you watch the trajectory of their life afterwards and rarely does that ever end up where they had hoped it to be. In fact, when you look at the lives of most of the famous or even people who have gotten rich very quickly, those are things the world says, hey, I'm gonna offer you the best. You go after them, go after these things, find your satisfaction in them, and they look great initially. They're very attractive up front, and we all are pursuing after them. But the reality is when you look behind the curtain on people who have been wildly famous or incredibly rich, you realize their lives are oftentimes much more broken than people with significantly less attention and greatly less resources. You see, in God's kingdom, the best is yet to come. In God's kingdom, he communicates very truthfully up front that life is gonna be difficult here and that even to begin a relationship with him, you're gonna have to face the worst stuff first and then the best will come later. 
He doesn't portray something where he says, hey, you give me your best now. Let me see how good you are, and then I'll welcome you in. He turns the tables on it and says, admit the fact that you're broken. Admit the fact that you're absolutely poor, that you are bankrupt spiritually and have nothing to offer. Deal with that reality first because we all know that about ourselves, how much we often fall short and all the things that we often keep hidden. But he says, if you can come to reconcile that, and that's exactly what Jesus came to do, then the best is yet to come. I love what one commentator uh, says about this passage uh, when he communicates about this picture of what's happening here. He says, Jesus was sitting amidst all this joyful uh, celebration. So here's Jesus at this wedding, and weddings are full of joy, full of celebration. And here's Jesus sitting at this joyful celebration, sipping the cup of his future sorrow, meaning he's reflecting on what it's going to cost him for his future wedding, infinitely more than any groom has ever had to pay. But it says, so that we can sit amidst the sorrows of this present world, sipping the cup of our future joy. He captures this perfectly, that Jesus in this moment where he should have been joyful almost seems a little ornery how he responds to Mary and then connects it to his death, but he's immediately transported to what it's going to cost him for his wedding. And he's in the midst of all this celebration, and he's sipping the cup of his future sorrow that awaits him in just a few years down the road. And he did that so that you and I, who live in this fallen, broken world, often filled with sorrows and, and unfulfilled dreams and hopes, but now through Jesus can sip the joy of this future kingdom that awaits us. You see, faith in future joy will strengthen you in present sorrows. That's what Jesus offers, is that faith in future joy can strengthen you in our present sorrows. And Jesus offers that here. He offered it even in his own life. He saw that. He lived that. As the scriptures tell us, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And that's exactly what he's calling us to. For the joy set before us now through him for this future wedding that we know is ours when we are in Christ, he is calling us to live with a joy, even in the midst of the sorrows of this world. I love how this is portrayed in simple ways in our life. Uh, we have some people in our household that are in the schools during this time, and the schools, as you know, have been a difficult place to be during COVID with all the restrictions that are put on students and them being in school and then being home in Zoom and the teachers and the pressure that's on them all. So when Christmas break was coming and two weeks off, my two daughters who are in middle school and high school were extremely excited, and my wife who is a teacher in the schools, all of them are extremely exhausted over everything they've had to go through. But as we came into this week uh, of the end of the school year, the first semester, and coming into Christmas break, there was a countdown that was starting every day of that last week of school. And Monday is like, oh, we got it Monday, but only after Monday, four more days till break, yeah. So this cheer would go out, and they'd get excited. The next day, there was only three more days until break. And I thought, this is exactly what God is calling us to do, that that future joy, they weren't on break yet. 
But they knew that break was coming. They knew rest was coming from celebration would be coming, some time together as family, and a a reprieve from the difficulties of what this semester has been like. And that future joy of break was trickling back into their present circumstance to power them through and give them strength. This is exactly what Jesus intends for us in a miracle like this. This is what he's picturing and pointing towards and to the glory of who he is and how the fullness of joy with him only comes with the presence of Jesus in this new heavens and this new earth. It doesn't come here. The fullness of it doesn't. We get a taste of it here. And that taste is all we need to be strengthened to walk through the sorrows of this world but we must seek that out in Jesus. We must not seek out our joys, the fulfillment of our joys in this world in a way that only Jesus' future presence can bring. When we seek to anchor our joy in the things of this world, it'll always leave us empty. It'll always come up short, and it'll always take our eyes off the ultimate fulfillment and joy in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, when we uh, aren't married and we think if I could just get married, if I could just find a spouse, then my joy would be complete. Then I'd have everything that I have and I want. When we put our joy in that, in this world, you will be disappointed when you get married and realize your spouse cannot fulfill the joys or the expectations that you put on them. It doesn't mean you won't grow in love with them, but when you put an unrealistic expectation and a fulfillment in something in this world that only Jesus can be and will be, you set yourself up for disappointment. If you're married and you are thinking that your spouse is going to meet every single need that you have and fulfill every joy that you have, you will be disappointed in this world because we live in a fallen, broken world and they are not the true and perfect spouse for you. It is a picture that points to the greater bridegroom who will be ours and the beauty of a new heavens and a new earth. When any pursuit of an earthly pleasure is what you hang your hat on for your ultimate joy, that pleasure, that joy, will always disappoint you. It'll never be what you expect it to be because God has told us that this fallen creation is groaning and awaiting its redemption in Christ as well. It is not designed to fulfill you the way only Jesus can, the way only God can, and the way only his new heavens and earth will one day fulfill you. It is so important that we understand the timing of this future joy. Because even amidst Christianity, there are so many teachers that are trying to teach and communicate that all these things will be here and ready and are for you right here in this world, and many people are greatly despaired and discouraged and let down because that's not how this world operates. We sip the joy of that future kingdom that strengthens us to walk through the present sorrows that this world continues to offer. If you've come to understand this amazing truth of what Jesus has done for us today through this this simple miracle, this sign that points to him, then I want to encourage you 
to trust him, to take that next step in your life and redirect your faith and your trust and your hope from the things of this world and put them in Jesus. Put them in this loving, perfect, sacrificial bridegroom who is calling you to his wedding feast and calling you into a life that will fulfill you more than you could ever imagine. He will forgive you. He died for your sins, and he offers you this new life. And if you will, even as this, this, this simple miracle communicates, if you'll acknowledge that you, uh, that you don't have what you need, that you'll acknowledge your emptiness, that you're a bridegroom just like this bridegroom whose resources will run out. You cannot meet and fix the needs that you have in your life. Admitting that is a first step towards a relationship with Jesus Christ. He needs you and wants you to realize that only he will fulfill you and only he is your ultimate end and goal. And much like this, what's amazing about it is there's even a slight metaphor in what happens in this parable or in this story, in this miracle, to what Jesus does for us in salvation. What the Bible tells us is that God, Jesus, lived a perfect life and then died in our place, and his perfect sinless life is now credited to us when we place our faith and trust in him. His reward, as we sang today, I gain from his reward. How can that be? That's exactly how God designed it. And that's what happens in this wedding in a strange way. You notice the master of the feast goes to the actual earthly bridegroom and says, hey, wait a minute. Everyone else puts out the good wine first and then saves the worst for last, but you've put out the best wine at the end. The master of the feast credits that bridegroom with the miracle that Jesus did. He gets credit for this awesome wine. And guess what? The bridegroom didn't even know what was going on, but he got credit for it. And I thought, think about, what about the wedding just down the street where they ran out and Jesus wasn't there to do a miracle? They would experience the shame of running out and realizing they have no one to meet that gap. Where this groom experienced the benefit of Jesus' miracle, and it was credited to him. And that's exactly what happens to you and I when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, when we look forward to his perfect heaven and his earth, and we find our hope and joy in him and not in the things of this world. He credits us. We receive credit for his perfect life, and he took our sins upon him on that cross. Maybe you're here and you've taken that step and many of you I know have, but you're discouraged and maybe you're disillusioned by just a season of sorrow in your life and you're wondering, how does this miracle help me? How does this miracle that Jesus did point me to who Jesus is and what do I need to learn from him? Well, just as we saw, there are seasons of sorrow in this world. The timing of this perfect joy is yet to come. And oftentimes, when we're in the midst of our greatest discouragements, our greatest sorrows, it's because our joys have just slightly deflected from the person of Jesus and been planted on something in this world. And usually that thing 
begins to get shaky and it's not quite what it once was. It could be a job, it could be a career, it could be our health, it could be a marriage, it could be a child. It could be any number of those things that we put our joys in. And God in his loving yet firm way will often begin to wiggle those things out and and pull them away from us. And it leads to some deep sorrows because at the bottom of that sorrow, it points us to the only one who can truly fulfill that place in our lives. And maybe for you today, you just need to pause and remember that your deepest joys will not and cannot be fulfilled by anyone or anything in this world. And redirecting them to this bridegroom who suffered for you and is anxiously awaiting and preparing a place and a feast and a wedding for you that will far exceed any possible joy you can ever experience in this world. And remember what he has done for you. You see, a church that sees the sign that Jesus performed and understands the truth that it reveals about him will be a church that shares the joy of salvation in Christ with its community. It'll be a church that can't help but welcome others and point others and want to invite others to this great celebration that awaits us in the person of Jesus Christ. Just as we all are excited to invite our friends and family to our own wedding or a friend's wedding or someone who we're part of, this is even a greater wedding that extends far beyond that. And a church that recognizes this truth and sees who Jesus is in this miracle and what he came to do will be a church that longs to share that joy and that hope with everyone in their city, with everyone in their neighborhood, with their family members, their friends and coworkers. That's who Jesus is. He brings abundant joy and he was willing to do so at incredible cost for you and for me. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful, (laughs) not just for this recorded story that John wrote down uh, in Jesus' life, but for the reality and truth of it, that this took place in a public place, that there was multiple people that witnessed this and experienced it, and that it is not a miracle that is to draw us to just what Jesus was able to accomplish or do. It wasn't that we need him to turn water to wine for us or if he would just do that same thing for us. This points to a greater reality. It points us to the beauty of who Jesus is, that he's not here to just give us a bunch of stale, rote, ritualistic rules for us to follow, and if we measure up, then he'll welcome us in. No, that's not what this points to. It points to a God who has prepared such a joyful celebration with us that so longs for us to be part of it that he is willing to sacrifice himself, that Jesus is willing to take our own punishment, our own sin upon himself so that we could enter into the joy of this celebration, this wedding feast that he is preparing for us. 
Lord, sow this truth into our hearts. Open our eyes to the goodness of your glory that you have revealed in Jesus Christ in this miracle so that we might see you for who you are, that we might find a deeper joy and satisfaction in you. And the things of this world will grow dim and less satisfying than what we know awaits us in you. You are our hope, Jesus. And we anchor our hearts in you. In your name we pray, amen.